Miracy. I think the more egotistical you are, the harder challenges you will face in this role. Because as I said, it's such a public ass kicking so much of the time. If you have high ego, you won't be able to handle that. You'll just crumble under the failure. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead is Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large, helping C-level executives have greater impact. We work together to clarify their priorities, energize their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we highlight ways you can supercharge your leadership by introducing you to real-life executives who've intentionally built organizations where the customers, the business economics, and the employees all thrive together. These successful business leaders demonstrate the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the power of their position requires an equal measure of responsibility to their customers, employees, shareholders, and communities. In each episode, we have the chance to learn from the challenges and successes they have experienced on their leadership journey. My guest on the show today is Arjun Murthy. Arjun was the co-founder and CEO of The Factual, a company that finds and delivers credible news stories using their own transparent, unbiased machine learning engine in an effort to mitigate the increased polarization driven by other media outlets. The Factual was recently acquired by Yahoo, and Arjun is now working on his next startup, currently in stealth mode. His past executive roles include Vice President of Infrastructure for SunGuard and Vice President of Business Development for HubSpot. Arjun has a computer engineering degree from the University of Waterloo and an MBA from Stanford University. He's been interviewed by The Wall Street Journal and The Next Web, is featured in the award-winning book Savvy, Navigating Fakeness, and he writes regularly about the news industry and about startups. As you hear Arjun describe his four leadership principles, clear vision, high integrity, the importance of being really sharp, and being likable enough that people want to work with and buy from you, I invite you to reflect on your own leadership principles and take note of where they match or where they differ from his perspective. Welcome to the show, Arjun. I'm so glad you're joining us today to share the challenges and the insights you've gained on your leadership journey. Fabulous. Thank you so much for having me, Sharon. That's actually the first time in a long, long time I've heard my bio read out, and it sounds awfully long, but I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much. So as we get started, Arjun, would you just walk us through the leadership roles you held before founding The Factual, and maybe a lesson that came from each role? Sure. So I started The Factual in 2016. So at that point, I'd been working for give or take about 15 years. And as with a lot of people, 15 years, you rise from the ranks. So I had entry-level type positions in software companies as a program manager or product manager, as they're often called today. And then eventually, I think the first real leadership role I had was at a startup. It was a software company out of Boston called Ion Logic. It was eight people when I joined, and it grew to about 100 or so and was sold to Symantec. But I was there, the general manager for the India operations. So we opened an office in India to start a development team there. So I went out there and stayed for six months. So that was really the first time that I ever was a manager of any kind. And one interesting lesson from that, I remember before I went out, my boss at the time, his name was Francis D'Souza, he pulled me aside and he said, hey, you know, I really like your sense of humor, the self-deprecation and the cynicism, it's fun. But now you're a manager, you need to cut out the cynicism. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah. 
as a manager, you're now a leader and people look to you and you can be cynical privately. And, you know, I'm not asking you to hold anything back when you have doubts about the company's plans. But when you are with the team, you cannot be cynical. You can question, you can express concerns, but no cynicism anymore. And I thought that was a really good piece of advice. So I want to ask about this. So what's the negative impact of that kind of cynicism in a first-time manager? You know, I think cynicism, if it's used as a way to inject humor, doesn't always necessarily come across that way, especially the larger and larger the audience. Some people might think, wow, even the manager doesn't believe in this plan, and then we're screwed. So it's okay for the manager to say, I know this is a difficult plan, or there are challenges with this plan. I don't know if it'll succeed. Like, it's the truth. Always speak the truth. But cynicism, I think, just sort of does dual harm. It neither shows that you are committed to doing this, and it might express that you have no hope of it ever succeeding. So why should anyone bother? So that's kind of thing. That is an excellent point. Okay, so next on the list. Yes. And then after that, I went to business school because I thought, God, I'm sick and tired of tech. I want to do something else. And I went to business school. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. As you no doubt remember, Sharon, and I got exposed to so many people and different fields of work. It was really interesting. So I tried management consulting after that. I was at BCG and I hated it. And so after two years, I was very, very happy to leave. I'm sure they would have kicked me out, but I left. And then I joined SunGuard as VP of infrastructure and I was building data centers. One of the most fun jobs I've ever had. And I was totally underqualified for it. I mean, data center operations and building large buildings and buying mechanical electrical uh, gear that's $100 million. It was crazy, but it was a lot of fun. I got to wear a hard hat and go to construction sites, which is always cool. So that was good. <laughs> and then I joined HubSpot. And that probably was the most formative thing that I've ever done prior to starting a company. I worked there for almost seven years. I joined HubSpot when it was fairly small, about 180 people, I think. And I stayed till it IPO'd about 3,000 people. Just an incredible management team there. Every one of them were absolute hitters. It was a little intimidating. And really, actually, the best thing I could do was be quiet and just listen and learn. And I did. I learned a lot from them. And then after that, I went off to start the companies. And maybe one interesting anecdote, some people ask, you know, how did you make the transition or stuff like that. And I think it's not a particularly great answer, Sharon. I think I was always unhappy at every job I've ever had. It's a terrible thing. There's a huge degree of arrogance in that statement. I wasn't grateful. I think I was just like, I could do this. These guys are idiots. I can do better whatever. I'd say all these things in my head. And eventually I just was like, I just need to do my own thing. And it was really good because as I'm sure you've had many other guests tell you, your first startup is an absolute public ass kicking. No one has said it quite like that yet, so you're the first. I love that. And it's really true because you're in the public eye from day one. Yeah, you're just failing all over. You look like a complete clown. And so it gets rid of a lot of the arrogance very quickly. So anyways, that's the path with a couple of digressions. Okay, so I'm going to just go backwards for a second. What did you take from your leadership at SunGuard? What was the big takeaway there? Yeah, at SunGuard, I was a cultural misfit at that company. If you're going to be part of a team and particularly lead a team, it really helps to come from that industry. And I wasn't. I was a complete rank outsider. I think that's difficult to build credibility, especially in this role, which had so much technical knowledge acquired on mechanical and electrical engineering. I lacked some of the knowledge and I wasn't the right cultural fit. I would say the people who hired me, there were also a lot of management consultants. And I think management consultants erroneously think that they can solve problems that are deep, intractable problems in companies because they're smart and they're good with spreadsheets and they know strategy. But I think that's just wrong. Like if I'm being really honest, when businesses have trouble, it 
oftentimes requires deep understanding of the customer, the industry, and where the industry is going. And that's just so much customer information, which is really the thing that management consultants don't usually know very well. They can read lots of reports and tell you lots of trends and decks and crap, but they don't actually know what's going on with customers and why they're making certain decisions and shifts. But yeah, if you're in a leadership role in a turnaround situation, you need really deep customer and industry experience and understanding because you're trying to do something that's exceptionally hard. It's hard enough running a business. A turnaround, really hard. Yeah. I think to be catapulted into a senior leadership role from the outside as your first real leadership is a bit risky. It is a challenge for sure. And sometimes the kind of challenge that drives a leader to seek a coach, quite frankly. And I think it can be helpful just because you don't have so many good colleagues that can advise you and share experience and you may feel insecure even asking. I had a sales coach when I was at HubSpot and he was amazing. There's this guy named Rick Roberge. And I remember being kind of hesitant and thinking about like, coach, why do I need it? I mean, I have a manager. And I remember I met Rick. He has such pithy things. But one thing he said, he's like, if you think about any of the people who are great at sports at the NBA, the NHL, whatever, why do they all have individual coaches? I mean, these guys are the best in the world. Why don't they just have the team coach? And it occurred to me that, yeah, like at the very top, you actually need really specialized help to keep at the top and to advance. And it didn't even occur to me that we were in that equivalent in the worlds that we are in business. If you're in the leadership of a big, important company, you typically venture back. It's definitely, you know, major leagues of these things. You can't be futzing around. So yeah, I'm a strong believer in coaching. So then when you got to HubSpot, one thing you already said is a key thing you did at HubSpot was you were quiet and listened to learn from all these very experienced people. So what did you take away? Well, how do you think it shaped you? So HubSpot, you know, one takeaway was learning sales. I mean, sales is such an important function. If you're going to run a business, it's got to be number one or two. You know, in a business, you either make it or you sell it. And those are the two jobs you really have. Especially in a smaller company. In a bigger company, I think you have a lot of functions that are important. But in a smaller company, build or sell. And so I think learning sales was important. It's a tough gig if you've never been trained. But once you're trained, it's a very enjoyable gig. Tell us about what you enjoyed about that. You know, I think you realize that when you learn how to do sales, you really are helping your customers to come away with a better understanding of the problem and maybe how to solve it. And if you approach it like that, like, hey, I'm really here to see if we can help you solve this thing. It's a much, much nicer conversation. And very much more relational. Very much. Yeah. Like the old cliche of people like to buy from people they like is still true. Yeah. I, like, I have a colleague who says it's all about they have to know you, they have to like you, and they have to trust you. That's great. That's it. Yeah. And so what the real takeaway then was I miss product. Like at its heart, what I realized is I've been running away from something that I actually really do like, which is building stuff. That's why I became an engineer. I don't know why I went to business school. I mean, it was fun, but really I should have continued building things. Managing consulting was like a way out of left field thing. You know, I'm glad I did it. I learned a lot, but all this other stuff and infrastructure and sales and like, it's good. You need all these things to be a CEO, but at the heart of it, I like building things. And so that's why I left to start a company. That's so awesome. And I guess the thing that I'm hearing from you that I just want to amplify for listeners is you do have to find the thing that you love doing and don't shy away from it because we each have different superpowers and all of them can help with the building of a company, making something, either you make it or you sell it, 
when you're leading a company as an executive, you're doing the same thing. What you're making is a company. You're making an environment where others can thrive. What you're selling is what a great place it is to be in order to do great work and satisfy customers. So I can imagine those things translated pretty well, but were you aware of that or did it come to you later? It came to me later. I would say that even if you just see what I said just now, you can find that there's some holes in the logic. See, I like building things, which is closely related to like, I like solving problems. And that's good, but that's not quite a CEO. That's more of a product person. And so when I started the first company, I was really operating more as a product person than a CEO. And that led to a lot of mistakes. First of all, it turns out I wasn't that good at product. And I had a bunch of products that I made failed. And then second is, you're thinking very much about problem, solution, problem, solution, but you're not thinking as much about the business and distribution and how this thing actually grows and whether it will be economically viable. You sort of think, oh, it'll sort of work itself out, but no. And actually, an even more fundamental flaw is when you like building things, you rush to build before you really understand the problem. You're a builder. And so your inclination is to put something together, to build something. But in business, most of the money tends to be wasted on products that don't have a big enough market because you don't really understand your customer. You don't really understand what's going on. Like you think you do. You spoke to a few people, you're like, oh, I totally get it. And then either it wasn't right or just very few people wanted it, et cetera. So towards the tail end, we hired a CMO, Anita. Chief marketing officer? That's right. Yes, chief marketing officer. And she was amazing. And even though she was there just for nine months, she really helped us position the business correctly and figure out who we were really targeting and was our messaging on point. Oh, that's terrific. And a great example of how to carry things from one place to the next seamlessly. Not painlessly, but seamlessly. As far as I know, there's really nothing painless about being a CEO. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think it is a very difficult job for sure. But I think the one part I would say about the CEO job that is more difficult than other jobs is it's very lonely. Every other role I had, you had peers and you had friends and support and you could theoretically go home at the end of the night and turn off the computer and you're kind of done for the day. But the CEO gig is weird in those two respects. It never actually goes away. It's always on. I'm always thinking about it. Whether I'm asleep or awake, I think about it. It's not healthy, but I do. And two is when you're really struggling with something, only other founders can understand it. And so you need a support group of other founders and CEOs as a CEO. Otherwise, it's very lonely. It really does make such a huge difference to have peers and advisors. And I think a lot of people talk about their kitchen cabinet, like who are their informal advisors, because it is lonely. And so do you have a couple of informal advisors that you reach out to now? I do. So I've had a group of three CEOs. We're all friends. And we started this support four or five years ago. We still talk at least quarterly, and they're great. I learn a lot from them. And sometimes it's just nice to see that I'm not alone in the mistakes that I'm making. But they're wonderful, very sharp guys. So one thing you said about your time at The Factual was there were a lot of pivots because a lot of the products didn't work. So what did you learn from that? Yeah, like I said, I think the internal learning was I rushed to build too soon, and I really need to understand customers and industry better. So that was a big lesson for me. The second is, you know, when you're trying to build a company that's not, let's say it's not run-of-the-mill, like a franchise that is a proven thing, like the factual is or most venture-backed businesses are, then you're trying to do something that is 
going to upset the apple cart. I hate the word disruption, but bear with me. Let me use it and say you're trying to disrupt something. That's very difficult to do if you don't really understand the current situation. And so one of the other takeaways I had is building a startup in a space you don't really understand just adds way too much risk. It's a bad idea. I did the factual because I was passionate about news and I thought this was a really important problem to solve. One that I was willing to give 10 plus years of my career for because I thought it'd make the country stronger and I wanted to do something good for the country. So just for folks, tell them what it was about the factual that made it so different because I think a lot of people maybe didn't come across it, unfortunately. By the way, the way that I met Arjun is I stumbled across the factual and I was crazy about the product. I was like maybe the most obsessed customer there was. So... Very, very kind of you. So uh, the factual was a way for people to find unbiased news on important sort of trending topics in the news. Typically world news, political news, US news, that kind of stuff, but everything, business, science, et cetera, because lately everything is politically tinged. And the idea of unbiased news is that everyone has a bias. Every journalist has some biases, even if they don't mean to, but some of them try their very best to report it as objectively as they can, with as much sourcing as they can, and minimal opinions, lots more sources, and really in areas that they focus on where they have expertise. So our thesis was, boy, if we could find articles like that, that were really well-researched, not very opinionated, written by experts in that area because they had written on it a lot, and we could do this from a few publications across the political spectrum, then collectively, you would be able to account for whatever biases that might be in there. So we wrote an algorithm that basically helped find that kind of news across thousands and thousands of sites, and then had a daily newsletter, website, app, et cetera, to put it out. And so, yeah, we had a very, very low-cost subscription model to fund the whole thing, and it kind of worked, actually. It was growing. The business was growing. It was nice, but it wasn't growing very, very fast. And so that's why when we had an opportunity to be bought out by someone much larger, it really helped financially, but of course, also to put the factual technology in front of hundreds of millions of people instead of just hundreds of thousands of people. And just for my own curiosity, is Yahoo continuing to use the same algorithm and model? Yeah, yeah. So we integrated the factual and built everything into Yahoo servers. It hasn't publicly debuted, at least not to my knowledge, but it will come soon. I can't wait. I really miss it. I really miss it already. Okay, so I want to zoom out now. So we've been kind of down into the specifics of what you learned. If you just reflect over the journey of the last 15 whatever years, 15, 20 years, let's say, how would you summarize your fundamental principles of leadership? What do you think really matters? I would say the first thing is clarity of vision. You really have a viewpoint of where something is going, and you're able to communicate that clearly to others in a compelling way that others say, yeah, I believe that vision. I like it. I want to support this. I want to help build towards that. I think that's one. I think two is high integrity. You're asking a lot of people to join you on this journey that is probably really hard. We'll have some ups and downs, make some sacrifices for a lot of these people, time away from their families, perhaps. You as a leader need to have just exceptional integrity that they believe, boy, that person's laying it on the line. They're out there working harder than even me. I trust them. Doesn't mean that necessarily we will be together forever and ever, but I don't think they'll do anything that jeopardizes the company or makes short-term decisions for their personal gain. They're in it for the long haul. I think that's really important. Three is... You need to be really sharp. Like there's just no way around it. You have to be very, very intelligent. That doesn't necessarily mean like mathematics type intelligence, although that's very good. 
but intelligent around reading the market and understanding customers and having the interpersonal skills to build good relationships with customers and people. So call it intelligent, call it salesmanship, whatever you want, but they need to be likable. I think that's really important. That's interesting. You talked about interpersonal skills as a subset of that being really sharp. And I'm glad you did because people think those are the soft skills. Yeah. But they're the hardest things to do. As you get higher and higher, there are lots of people who understand the subject and are good with spreadsheets and math. That's not a differentiation. That's just table stakes. But you see the people that very quickly build trust with people and they do so much better. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask one hard thing. To what extent do you think ego is at play? And how does ego show up in this ability to connect and build trust? I think the more egotistical you are, the harder challenges you will face in this role. Because as I said, it's such a public ass kicking so much of the time. If you have high ego, you won't be able to handle that. You'll just crumble under the failure. You'll be embarrassed all the time. I think... The best leaders really minimize their ego. They have a very keen understanding of their strengths and weaknesses. So you hire to complement and build those weaknesses. And in the few things that you're good at, lean on those. I really appreciate your comments on that. Because I think it's something that a lot of leaders really struggle with. You have to have a certain amount of hubris to think that you can start something. Like you said earlier, hubris, a little arrogance, whatever. But at the same time, you need the humility to recognize you can't see everything. The perspective from which you come isn't the same as the perspective from which other people come, so you might be missing stuff. And then I think that piece of the word you didn't mention yet, but one that I use a lot is curiosity. There's something genuinely curious in people that have a tempered ego, let's say. At least that's been my experience, and I really personally value that because that's how we learn together is through our mutual curiosity. My personal blog is called CuriousJuice.com. Curious juice? Yes. Like juice that you drink? Oh my God, I love that. My nickname in college was Juice. And so I'm always eager to read and learn. I just think the world is very interesting. I think people are very interesting. Everyone has a story that's brilliant if you just give them a chance, if you really get to know them. So one thing that our listeners particularly love, I have heard, is when leaders will share those moments of vulnerability from which they learn. So if you're willing, like, are there growing pains that you've been through or any, like, a particular moment or a story that really shaped something important in you as a leader? Tough piece of feedback, hard criticism, you tried something that you thought you were going to be great at, but you just totally couldn't do it. Hard feedback, yep, I've had that. So let's just pick that one. What's an example of, like, you heard some feedback that was hard to hear? What was it? And how did you make sense of it? Yeah, so at HubSpot, one of the ways that you were measured in the annual review was through an acronym called HART, H-E-A-R-T. And I remember one year, I got a very mediocre rating on effectiveness. That must have hurt. It did, it did. And, you know, my natural instinct was to sort of reject it and say, that's not true. Like, you're asking me to do this Herculean thing at the time was to build a partnership with Salesforce and LinkedIn. And, you know, we were a tiny 500-person company and these guys were billion-dollar behemoths. And, of course, they didn't want to really do business with us. So I was like, I don't understand what you're expecting. Like, it's really hard. It's going to take time. And in retrospect, I think the rating was largely correct. I had not been that effective to date. Years later, I was. But to date, I wasn't. And the big lesson I 
took away from that is as much as it really hurts, you just have to accept responsibility for where things are. And you could blame lots of things. Well, the market and the businesses are big and we're small and blah, 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 blah. But you know what? They didn't sign you up to do an easy job. If it was an easy job, they wouldn't pay you this much. You have to do a hard job. And if it doesn't come out, it's on you. I don't know what else to tell you. It's on you. And the rating was right and I was wrong. So for you, for a while you were ineffective, then you became more effective. What did you do differently that helped you become more effective? I think I did work harder. I did push a lot more. I think some of it was time. I'd been sowing enough seeds with some of these people that they started to sprout. But the pushing harder was true. I used to squat in LinkedIn's lobby many, many times, waiting for a meeting that I didn't even have on the books. I'd just be like, I was in the neighborhood. I thought I'd stop by. And they're like, oh, okay. I was not in the neighborhood. I lived in Boston and I flew and I stayed in their lobby with zero meetings on hand just to see if I could get meetings with people. So yeah, I did a lot of crazy things like that and I think it helped. But yeah, I think I just worked harder. And I still think I could have done better. In retrospect, I still think I can do better. I think it was important for me to move towards a field where I'm naturally good and I naturally enjoy being there versus being in a field where I'm not and I'm trying so very hard to make it work when it's just not me. So I'll do it because I don't like letting anyone down. But if you really want to be the very best at something in a field, you better go to a field that you just enjoy. And so that was the big change after that. So just as we've been talking today, the word that keeps coming to my mind over and over again is purpose. Maybe not just the vision for your company, but the purpose. Maybe not just your passion or something you enjoy, but your sense of purpose. What do you think about that? I think one of the things I realized is building a business is a long, long run. It's a marathon, as everyone tells you. I'm trying very much this time to enjoy the journey versus just look at the goal. A lot of people build stuff with goals. I get it and it works. But if I'm being totally honest, I don't really give a shit about goals. I'm not here for the next funding round or the IPO or some dollar figure. I don't really care. I want to build a great company. I want to have employees that find enjoyment in their work and get paid so that they can live well with their families. I want to help customers solve a problem that's near and dear to their heart and helps them be more successful at their jobs. And that's it. I don't want to overstate the value or the importance of this company. I'm not on some world-changing mission and saving lives. Just building a business, and I'd like it to be a good one. So, you know, do I have some sort of deep purpose? I don't think so. Not in that regard. I think like maybe a lot of people, I find meaning in many things in my life. Spending time with my children, with my parents, doing things for my community. Like there are lots of other ways that I find purpose, and I don't feel that the business has to be some sort of soul-defining purpose. But I do love building it. Ah, this is just great. So what do you feel like is your learning edge now in your executive role building this new company? Where are you struggling? Or what do you feel like is most important for you to grapple with next? I've never run big teams. I've always had small teams. So I think that challenge is coming. You know, I've existed at the level of I can coordinate most things. I know generally what most people are doing. That is someday going to be far, far too difficult. And so I think it'll call for a different type of leader. And hopefully I can grow into that type of leader and learn. I think there will be some challenges with those kinds of things. I think there'll be some growing pains when, you know, you have to make changes to the team and some people move up and down and out and those have hurt. I don't know how well I'll handle some of those. So I think I'm going to have to learn some of that. Yeah, I just think there's a lot 
a lot of growing up and learning still to do. Hopefully it doesn't all come too fast, so I have time to do it. But like I said, try to enjoy the journey. We're building something really great. And hopefully everyone who's associated with it is having fun too. That's terrific. So is there anything that you've learned in your executive roles in the startup world that you wish you could tell your younger self when you were in these corporate roles? A few things. One is you might see a company that's run in a way that you think doesn't make any sense. It's possibly true. It might also be that you just don't understand the problem well enough. Sometimes weird ways of doing things are there for a reason. <laughs> the more you sort of really understand the problem, you're like, oh, that's why you guys do it like this. You're not so dumb. I get it. So really try to understand the problem deeply. As I said before, really, really try to understand your strengths and weaknesses, not because it's an interview question, but because you at best have one or two strengths and you have a whole bunch of weaknesses. Really, really try to understand that. It will help you down the line. Three, learn from everyone that you can. doesn't matter whether they're junior or senior. They come from a famous university or went to no university. doesn't matter. You can learn something from everyone you encounter. If you have that kind of mindset, you very, very quickly learn. And more importantly, you very quickly build good relationships. You know, when you finally get around to running your company, guess what? You call up every friend and every acquaintance you've ever had because sometimes they'll be your early customers. They're the only people that'll talk to you. No one else will talk to you. The wider a circle of good friends you have and good professional acquaintances you have, the more likely you are to be successful. So be good to people. That's great. So my last question is about the title of our podcast. So we call it To Lead as Human. And I love for each guest to just say, what does that mean to you, to lead as human? If you're leading, you're leading other people. And people's lives are so stressful. People have so many things going on. People have all kinds of worries. If you're trying to lead them, be empathetic to what they're going through. And therefore, when you make demands, be clear and reasonable. So that people are like, yeah, you know, I, I can sign up for that. And then sometimes, maybe the second part I'll say is, leaders are just as much followers sometimes. Leading is not always being the person at the front and look at me and do what I say. There's leadership at many levels. There's leadership, different kinds of leadership. There's reasons why some people on your executive team are better at some things than you are. Sometimes be a follower too. Listen and say, you know, I kind of like what she's saying. And even though she's not the boss, I think she's right. I think I want to go with what she's saying. Thank you so much, Arjun, for joining me today. I have stalked you for a while. I'm not ashamed to say so, but I felt there was something in the way you spoke about the company from the get-go, the factual, that I really resonated with. And so I thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on today and sharing your experiences and your perspective. It's just been a terrific conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Sharon. It's so kind of you to say all those things. Thank you very much. Thanks. And so if listeners want to keep up to date with you, your work, what's going on, how do they do that? Yeah. Best way is probably to follow me on Twitter. I'm Juice Morthy. So Juice, M-O-R-T-H-Y. Follow me there. You'll probably see everything that I'm interested in. But if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, go for it. Just let me know you heard us on Sharon's podcast and I will gladly add you as a connection. Thank you again so much for being here. Thanks again for having me. Please stay with us for a moment, and I'll share some takeaways from Arjun and a coaching tip to help you up-level your own leadership starting tomorrow. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com. 
and you could book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. So Arjun raised something in this conversation today that we haven't talked much about on our podcast so far, that leadership success is situational. Not every leader can be effective in every circumstance. He shared with us two factors that affected his own success, or lack thereof, how well or poorly he fit into the culture of the organization, sometimes well and sometimes poorly, and whether he had enough technical knowledge or experience to build credibility in a new executive role where he hadn't grown up in the company. This last factor is especially important to think about if you're leading in a turnaround situation where depth of knowledge can really accelerate the necessary improvements. Second, Arjun learned firsthand and the hard way that having a great idea that customers love isn't quite enough to ensure success. You need to be sure that the market is large enough that you can achieve the financial outcomes you need especially in a venture-backed or any kind of constrained capital situation. His solution, what he learned the hard way, is include marketing expertise right from the beginning. Because especially when you've got people who are builders driving to build fast, the marketing expertise can help make sure that the depth of understanding of customers and the market will ensure the potential for success. The third thing is something we've heard from other guests, but it definitely bears repeating. Arjun talked about how important it is to be brutally honest with yourself about your strengths and even more so about your gaps. He said it's really important to know whether you by nature are more of a builder or more of a seller and that you also take advantage of the opportunity to get any specialized help you might need. He had a personal epiphany about why even a top leader might work with an executive coach and experience that firsthand at HubSpot where the unique contributions of the sales coach he worked with really helped him improve his success as a leader. This week, the coaching tip I offer is more one of reflection than action. Because we're talking about how situational leadership can be, I invite you to reflect on the situations where you've been most successful as a leader. Are there common characteristics, maybe the stage of the company, the industry focus, a functional expertise, or maybe just a passion for the product or customer? And what is it about how you lead? that makes you best in those situations. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead as Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G, large.com. To Lead as Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Melissa Deal assembled the episode, and Marvin Del Rosario is the audio editor. Danny Eaney is our executive producer. Make sure you don't miss upcoming episodes by following us on Miracy FM's YouTube channel or on your favorite podcast player. If you learned something useful today, take a minute, please, and leave us a starred review, and also tell your colleagues about us. The more leaders we can reach, the better for all the employees in all of our companies. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you the next time on To Lead as Human.
Miracy. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Muskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making, Making it. it. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it to me really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like, for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts. No shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing, and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.